Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Densky talks with one of our seniors, Emma Mitchell, about her story and how God has been growing her and teaching her in the past few years. Emma talks about putting identity in what others think about her and talks about wrestling with an eating disorder. Matt and Emma talk about freedom from shame, comparison, and what it looks like to ask for help. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. You can be seated. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Greenville students. Great summer night uh, to be here and to be doing this. Tonight's going to be a little bit different. So every fall, we, we always have a series called My Story, where some of our students share their story, and we just tune in and listen and posture our hearts in a way uh, to receive and, and kind of learn from their journey. And tonight we are doing kind of a one-off of that series. So it's not fall and we're not doing an entire series. It is just a standalone. Uh, so let me introduce tonight our student guest of honor, someone I'm so excited to be sitting here with, Emma Mitchell. Welcome. Give it up for Emma. Hi. So Emma, I have been pestering you, asking you persistently poking at this thing now for two years. I've have, I have begged Emma to come and share her story for the last two years. And the Holy Spirit finally began to convict you. You, you finally started, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, obviously. No, the, the timing was good, right? It was just like, I think it's time. Like senior year, I think you, you've taken some strides in your growth and maturity and things like that. And we were talking on the phone Friday about some things and I was just telling you over and over, like, oh, I'm just so proud of you. Like, it's just been an amazing journey to watch. And so I do want to dip into your story and hear some things. First, though, I'm going to share a story from the Bible that I think will give us a good launching point for your story tonight. And so, uh, so let's go there. In, in the book of Genesis, um, we, we see this family unfolding throughout the pages of the book of Genesis. And Genesis itself is very narrative. It's very story-driven. And the family that we see just unfolding page after page is this family of a man named Abraham. And uh, Abraham had uh, a unique relationship with God, and Abraham had um, a unique re- relationship with his family because he was very old and his wife was very old, um, and they were barren. Uh, his wife could not have children. And God makes Abraham a promise, you're going to have children. In fact, you're going to have so many descendants, no one will be able to count them. And Abraham's like, dude, I, I don't, I'm assuming you know how the body works because you made it, but but you kind of need to not be barren for this thing to work. And and uh, and God was basically like, you'll see. And so his wife actually conceived late in life, and they had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, uh, twins. One was named Esau, and the other was named Jacob. And Jacob uh, is, is kind of the guy I want to focus on tonight. So Jacob's name means the deceiver. Um, Jacob was this dude who his entire life, he just kind of had an MO. He was looking out for himself. He deceived others. He teamed up with his mom to deceive his dad, which is just like, I mean, if you zoom out of the biblical narrative and you look at that, you're like, dude, what is going on? Like, that is messed up, man. And, and it's like, mom, that's messed, that's your husband. And, but the mom's like, Jacob was a mama's boy and, and mom loved him. And he's like, oh, thanks, mom. And so he deceived his dad and he tricked his brother and he... Uh, is just selfish and prideful and arrogant, and he just ends up deceiving his father-in-law in this crooked deal that he made. And, and so you just see this whole narrative of Jacob's life marked by the fact that he was a deceiver, and he's always looking out for himself. And then you come across this really, really interesting story 
We're actually going to dip more into this at our epic uh, retreat coming up in September. We're going to have an entire session on Jacob, this passage. So I'm just giving you a little teaser right now. But we come across this story where Jacob's life has been marked by selfishness and pride and looking out for, number one, looking out for himself, deceiving everyone around him to, to advance his own self and his own prosperity. And, um, and even just treating like the women in his life um, badly, like dude, dude was just, yeah, he was a turd. I, th- I think I can say that. There, there's a Hebrew word somewhere in the Old Testament that applies. He was a turd. And, um, and then we see Jacob come into this moment where he ends up wrestling with God. This really bizarre passage in the Old Testament where we see God in a very literal, physical wrestling match with this man named Jacob, and they wrestle the entire night, kind of this back and forth wrestling. And it's this symbolism of what Jacob has been doing his entire life. He's been wrestling with the ways of God and instead doing what he wanted to do. And so as the sun is coming up, God does this amazing thing where he breaks Jacob's hip and defeats Jacob in a sense, teaching him a lot of things in that moment um, but one of them being humility. Like in, in those days and with the medical uh, advancements and practices that were available to them, there was no way to, to properly heal a hip or, or reset it correctly. And so Jacob would have been marked by this literally for the rest of his life. He would have walked with a limp forever after this, a distinct marking of this transformation. Um, so the man who walked so pridefully and arrogantly now is going to have a limp the rest of his life, but, but something else happens beyond the physical in this moment with God is that Jacob's heart changes. See, Jacob had been wrestling with God his entire life, and we see it in, in his sin. We see it in the ways that he treated the people in his life, the way that he deceived his brother and his dad and his father-in-law and the ways that he treated women and, and the ways that he tricked others to advance himself. We see it all along. And this is the descendant of Abraham. Like, this is the guy in the family lineage that was supposed to be kind of in this relationship with God. And and we see this selfish, arrogant, childish mama's boy who deceives everybody. And in this wrestling match with God, he's changed. In fact, so much so that God renames him. You're no longer called the deceiver. From now on, your name will be Israel. God gives Jacob the name Israel, which later becomes the name of the nation that God is developing and forming through this family. And from that moment on, physically and spiritually, Jacob was changed. And I bring that story up because I think, as we were talking Friday, um, you didn't deceive your brother, Nick, wherever you're at. I don't, I don't know if you're in here. Oh, he's in, oh, right, right, right. Next step, you haven't deceived your brother. You haven't deceived your father. Like, I'm not, there's not parallels like that. But there, there are these things we were talking Friday of, like, your journey with God has been marked consistently by um, some things that you'll share tonight. And as as we were um, talking on the phone, you said, man, I asked you, I was like, all right, if you could summarize your entire story in one word or, or two words or whatever, what would it be? And, and you threw out the words identity and freedom. And this idea of like, man, I, I've reached this place where God has given me victory and freedom in my life and in my spiritual walk. And I've been able to find identity in Jesus that has always been kind of a wrestling match up until this point, which was really it's kind of beautiful language as you were talking on the phone. And so, in a real way, Jacob's story is really all of our story. Like, we're, we're wrestling with God about something. 
We kind of know how we should be living, and yet we're doing the things we want to do. We, we know what God calls us to, and yet we're resisting that. Sin comes out, and selfishness comes out, and in our worst moments, we, we do these things that, that mark us as deceivers or um, whatever your word might be. And Jacob had this wrestling match with God. And for some of us, most of us, it's not going to be a physical, literal wrestling match. That'd be kind of weird if God showed up in your room one night and was like, let's go, big boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I submit right now, tap. Um, but for most of us, it's kind of this figurative wrestling of our heart, like submitting to God and his ways versus doing what we want to do or being defined by God and his truth versus allowing culture in the world to define us or finding security or identity or satisfaction or whatever it may be in things other than God. And we're in this wrestling match. And kind of the, the question on the table tonight is like, have we been marked by allowing God to win, so to speak? Are we marked with humility? Have we been forever changed? Have we finally surrendered and submitted to God? Or are we still wrestling? And Emma's story was, is one so beautiful. I think of submission and surrender to God and finding freedom and victory and identity in ways that you never have before. So let's jump into it. Uh, Emma, why don't you just start, just tell us, I'm just going to open it up. We're going to tune into you. We're going to listen to you. We want to learn from you. But what has your journey been like? Um, yeah, walk us through, like, how did you come to know Jesus what has your walk with Jesus been like? Kind of what have some, been some defining things in your life? Sin struggles, you know, leading up to this, this point where you're having some realizations about man surrendering to God has brought about these things. So don't worry about if it's a long answer or not. We want it to be long because we want to hear your story. But walk us around. How did you come to know Jesus and your journey afterwards? Okay. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. Like I went to church my whole life. And I came to fellowship I was like first or second grade maybe, and I was active in youth group and Sunday school and everything. And I first gave my life to Jesus at seven, but as I got older, I realized it was more um, head knowledge instead of heart knowledge when I first gave my life to Jesus. And so I came to that realization when I was probably like 13. So then I rededicated my life because I took the baptism class again. And that's where I really realized that I didn't do it for real the first time. So yeah, I rededicated my life when I was 13 and I went to a new middle school. That was probably like a big changing point in my life. I moved to a new school district and I became friends with like the popular girls or whatever. And they kind of just took me in. So I felt really like, I felt like I belonged and everything, but it just started kind of like changing cause I got made fun of for like being really skinny. like. I'm a dancer, I've always been skinny, and I didn't see anything wrong with it until like these boys started picking on me, and I was like, no one's ever done this to me before, I don't know why me. So I like started becoming really insecure about myself, and I started trying to find my identity about what these boys thought about me, and how I looked, and how much I weighed, and everything. And that started a really like scary process of like, before lunchtime I'd get like, really nervous to go in there and I'd be like, well, I don't feel really hungry right now. So maybe if I like start like purging every day before lunch, I would feel better and then go eat lunch and I'd gain weight. It was just a really like twisted like cycle that I went through. And I did that about every single day before lunch when I was in seventh grade. And I also had dance four days a week. And that was like dance for four hours, four days a week. 
So I don't know how I had enough energy to keep doing that. But that's like the first place I started finding my identity in was boys and what they thought about me and everything. And I have like three different like things I found my identity in throughout my life. And it kind of, they kind of took a break from when I was a freshman. We got into high school. They grew up. They stopped picking on me. And I started. It doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it. Middle school boys, (laughs) just like Jacob, are turds. Okay. They're dumb. It's a very biblical word. Look yeah. it up in the Hebrew. Yeah. And I thought I think they thought they were being funny and I was mm-hmm. like laughing. I was like, Oh yeah, that's so funny. But and then so I was like, ow, I hurt my feelings. But yeah, they kinda left me alone freshman year. Um, and then my freshman year I joined my high school dance team and I was the only freshman that year on the team. So I was like the youngest and it was really strict, like if you weren't perfect, I felt like I was like gonna get like looked down upon and my coaches would hate me. So I was really, really hard on myself. Mm-hmm. And I used to get really anxious before going into practice or anything like that. And so the purging started again, not for the same reasons as, oh, I wanna like gain more weight, but because I was anxious and it made me feel better and I could control it. Yeah, so it gave you a sense of control. Yes, yeah. I, lo- I-, I liked feeling in control of it. And I knew that it was hurting me, but like no one asked questions. like. My parents didn't ask, my friends didn't ask, so I just kept doing it and no one questioned anything. So anytime like my dance situations or my relationships got stressful, I found that purging like helped me a lot. And it helped me with like my first relationship. Every time I got anxious, I would just do it and I felt better. Or if there's something going on at my house, I would just do it and I felt better. And so it was, I don't think I realized how bad it was hurting me until really just a few months ago and everything. And throughout the whole time, I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anybody. Yeah, so, so no one knew. No one All knew. secret. Mm-hmm. So I found my identity again in dance and what my coaches thought of me and what type of teammate I was. And I also found it in like my relationship and what my boyfriend thought of me because I wanted to be perfect for everybody all the time. And it was such a hard burden to carry alone because... I can't do it, you can't do it alone. And so I finally got help um, this past, I think it was January, I told my mom that I had been like struggling for a really, really long time. And I went to our, my family counselor and then they sent me to like an eating disorder specialist. Um, and she was really, really eye-opening to me and I learned a lot because With an eating disorder, I thought there's only one eating disorder and everything. And all I knew about eating disorders was that I had a friend that had one and then her family sent her away. And I didn't know where she went. I had no idea. And so I was terrified to tell my parents because I thought that was going to happen to me. And it wasn't until I was like educated on like what they are and how many different kinds there are that I was like, okay, I really should have said something sooner. So, yeah, I got, like, I guess diagnosed with anorexia back in February, but I had been carrying that since seventh grade, and now I'm a, I've just graduated. So it was really, really hard. But freedom comes, came in with me when I told my mom I got help, and I got, like, physical and mental um, counseling and biblical counseling. So sitting in solitude and just listening to God really helped me, and... Every time I just like just sat there and listened, I always like found out something new about him and he always was saying something to me 
depending on like what my situation was and everything. So it's like a little, little bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, I think it takes a tremendous amount of vulnerability and courage to open up at all, to be on the stage. I mean, you know, this is super scary, right? To, yeah, to be up bit. here. Um, but to, to have the courage to, to talk through your journey of the past six years or so, mm-hmm. is really amazing. So you said, hey, I, I found my identity in three things. Mm-hmm. So dance was one of them. And, and so when did you start dancing? Like what age were you when you started dancing? I was about eight or nine, I think. And eight I was nine. dancing at a studio for a while. Okay. And then I stopped studio dancing. And then when I got into high school, that's when like our dance team was created. Okay. So I feel like that was like God saying, no, you're going to keep dancing and mm-hmm. you're not going to like stop here. So then I danced all throughout high school. Okay. And, and the other thing you found your identity in was people mm-hmm. in general, like yeah. in seventh grade or eighth grade, it was the, the boys that were bullying you and you, you kind of tried to uh, live into whatever you thought their expectations might be. Yeah. Again, they're turds, so pay, <laughs> pay them no mind. Um, but it did affect you. Like you, you, were, you felt the pressure to kind of fit into whatever box they were creating. Yeah. And so you began to find identity. What, what was the third thing you, you began to find identity in? I think just like I found identity in my actual eating disorder. Because mm-hmm. with mine, my counselor puts in a good way, it taunts you like in your head. It t- mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like the voice in your head instead of just like a normal voice, it's the eating disorder voice in my head. So it's like telling me, oh, you don't need to eat, you're okay. Like, oh, I don't feel hungry, so I'm not going to eat. Mm-hmm. And that's not me just being like, I don't want to eat or anything like that. It's just because I physically don't feel hungry. So the eating disorder is like, then you don't need to eat. You're fine. Mm. So sometimes I'd go like days without eating a real meal. I would just snack on little things. Yeah, kind of graze here and there. Yeah. And then dancing, I don't know how I had enough energy to Mm. do that every day of the week. Yeah, I don't know either because that's hard. Yeah. You actually practiced a routine up here at the church one time. Oh my gosh! Yeah, there. I did. And it was I like time that. after time after. I was like, oh my gosh! It was hard. I'm tired. And that was that. during a really rough patch. Mm-hmm. I think that was before I told my mom about it and everything, yeah. because it got bad again in December. Like I just started purging a lot more for anxiety reasons. After like my relationship ended, I just was like flooded with mm-hmm. anxiety all the time, yeah. and so that was like a stress relief. So I was still going through that when I was up there dancing. So it was really hard. Wow. All right, so Emma, walk us uh, around a little bit. Like what, what was your relationship like with Jesus in the midst of all of this? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when we talked on the phone, I encourage you, I said, look, if, if your journey is like, hey, I was raised in a Christian home, then own it. And I would encourage every single person in this room, if you've been raised in a Christian home, own it because we tend to think like, oh, my testimony sucks because I was raised in a Christian home. It's boring. Like I didn't, you know, go off the deep end and get arrested 17 times and go to prison and lead everyone to Jesus in prison. Like what the heck? What? Yeah. So we tend to downplay the fact that we were raised in a Christian home, which is silly because I, I would think most of us who are following Jesus would desire our kids to grow up in a Christian home. Like that's the goal as parents. And so it's, it's a great testimony. It's like, man, my family had values that brought me to the faith early on, which is really amazing. Um, So I know you said, hey, when I was seven, I prayed, and then, okay, when I was 13, I kind of got the bigger picture, and and that was kind of the for real thing. And so your faith in Jesus is uh, 
simultaneous with your eating disorder, which is really unique because I think, I think sometimes people think, well, if you're not perfect in your faith or in your life, then, then something's wrong. Like um, if you're struggling with issues, you must not really believe or, or whatever. So walk us around a little bit of like, wh- what was your journey with Jesus like in the midst of your eating disorder? Yeah, like I didn't really like go to God for it, which is crazy because I'm looking back on it now. I'm like, I really could have like gotten a lot of help a lot sooner if I had Mm -hmm. gone to God, but I never did because I thought he'd be ashamed of me or something like that. And it just didn't click in my mind. Maybe I should go to God with this. It was just like, I'm just going to keep it hidden. And my parents were growing up. They did a great job, like going to church and bringing me to Sunday school Love you, Mom. And they've always done a really good job at that and encouraging me and my siblings. Um, And so in the midst of all that, I didn't really think I could go to God with that because I thought it wasn't important enough, I guess, to go to Him for it. Because it seemed like there were so many other things happening in my life and in my family's lives and just people around me that seemed so much more bigger and more important than what I was going through and everything. And since nobody was questioning me, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. So that's probably like a reason I didn't go to God during all of it. Yeah, yeah. But like I still went to church, I still went on retreats, like my love for God didn't stop. But there were times where I got really upset with myself. I was just like, why is this happening to me? Like, why do I feel like this all the time? And it was kind of my fault because I was kind of making myself feel that way and mm-hmm. I wasn't going to God for it because it just, it wasn't helping me yeah. to just keep it inside all the time. Wow, so you thought he'd be ashamed of you? Yeah. As his daughter? Yes. Why? Like, where, where did that come from? I think that's the voice, like the eating disorder voice in my head, too. And even just like the devil taunting me. Yeah, yeah. I feel that sometimes because I'm just like, oh, I'm annoying and no one wants to hang out with me. I don't feel mm-hmm. loved and everything like that. And I'm just like, who is telling you this? Yeah. That's true. Like, yeah. who is telling you this? And it's literally just me thinking of all this stuff in my head. And I'm not looking to God who says, I'm loved. I am his. Mm-hmm. I am everything that he wants me to be. I'm in his image. And I just wasn't looking for that. Yeah, that's so good. So you said two things that I think are pretty profound and descriptive of so many of us in this room and just like people generationally, uh, multi-generational, whatever. You didn't go to God because you thought he'd be ashamed of you. And so there's this sense of shame going on in your psyche like that is somehow invading and defining your relationship with God. So I want to pause there and, and just bring clarity to this for a minute. So like if anyone in the room right now is like, I can't go to God with my stuff, whether it's an eating disorder or whatever you're wrestling with, right? I can't go to God with my stuff because oh, I'm just I'm ashamed. Man. I just feel so much shame. One of the things we see in the scriptures, in the text, is that Jesus never shames people. And the role of the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of Jesus, never shames people. Um, The role of the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of their sin so that we become sensitive to the things that are hurting God and destroying us and thereby through his power and presence repent of them uh, so that we can become even more like Jesus. Conviction is very different than shame. So the Holy Spirit basically says, hey, you're doing something wrong. Shame says you are something wrong. And those are two very different conclusions. And when we apply shame 
to God's voice, it can inhibit intimacy and prayer life and understanding and eventually kind of uh, create this wedge in a relationship with God where it's like, he wouldn't even want me or I don't even want him, you know, whatever. So let me make this clear for everybody in the room. The spirit of God never shames people. He convicts, which means you're doing something wrong, but he never shames you. He never says you are something wrong. Two very different things. We can come to God with absolutely everything on our heart. There is no shame in the presence of God. The enemy is the one who lies to us and convinces us that we are shameful. The scriptures say something entirely different. You've been bought with a price. You've been made perfect. We are the bride of Christ. He delights in us, those things. Uh, The other thing that you said, which I think so many would apply to so many, is You know, I was looking at the things I was struggling with. I was looking at um, my eating disorder. And then I was looking around at everything else that other people are struggling with. And through comparison and through some scale, some um, system of metrics, I decided that mine is not as important, significant, or heavy as their stuff. Therefore, it paled in comparison. Or in other words, it wasn't as important. It didn't matter as much. And we do this all the stinking time where we take the things in our lives that we're struggling with and we kind of look around to everyone else and we're like, I mean, I mean, I'm going through some stuff, but it's not that. So therefore it must not be that important. And we convince ourselves to do nothing with it because the conclusion would be, well, I'd be a burden to someone else. Or you said the word annoying. I'd be annoying someone else by telling them these things. Again, those conclusions are the complete opposite of what would actually bring health. Health would come from vulnerability, confession, authentic exposure about what's going on in our hearts, inviting people in. There's no, um, <laughs> there's no like, if you were to go up to someone and be like, hey, man, I'm just struggling with an eating disorder. And they're like, oh, well, I'm struggling with an eating disorder. And, and they trump card it. It's like, oh, okay, never mind that. Like, I don't, we play those games in our minds, but that's not actually reality. When we have empathy and compassion, we meet people where they're at, and there's no comparison game going on with like, I know you're struggling with that, Emma, but I just got back, you know, from a third world country, and you should see what they're going through. Like, yeah. no, dude, like, this is real for you in the context that you're in, and we need to have compassion and meet people in those places, just like we see Jesus do. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage you and every person in this room, if you've ever played that game where it's like, I mean, I'm going through some stuff, but it's not like, I don't have it as bad as they do. Yeah. Don't do that. I think when you said about how it was like the complete opposite and stuff, Mm -hmm. when I was so scared of vulnerability, before I did the liminal leadership class, I used to have panic attacks before going in there because I was so scared (laughs) to be vulnerable with everybody. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Yeah. And um, I think it's because I didn't want people to pity me Mm -hmm. because I have always been like, I'm fine, I don't need anybody's help or anything like that. I've been really independent. And I don't know if that's just because I'm the oldest sibling or something, Mm -hmm. but I've always been like that. And so I didn't want people to pity me for it. And I hated when people were like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? I'd be like, stop talking. Please Mm -hmm. don't talk to me like that because it made it all worse. I think that's what scared me even more is that if someone saw me struggling with this, then I was failing, then I was doing something wrong in life. So I feel like that's why I didn't come out with it sooner. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere, like deep down, you're, I mean, I know you've identified dance, people, 
the eating disorder itself, but I, I think somewhere you're, you were also finding identity. You said the word uh, your ninth grade year, you felt like you had to be perfect. I think there's this strong thread of perfectionism buried in you, right, there, somewhere? There like, is. Yeah. There definitely is. So, so, like, where does that standard come from, and, and why did you find yourself trying to live into it so often? I think it came from, like, as I said, being the oldest, but also I think just from the outside world too, like social media and seeing what everybody else had around me. And if I didn't have that, then I wasn't perfect like they were. That's just what my mindset was and everything. And like, I hated getting in trouble with my, my parents or something because I thought they were so disappointed in me. They hated me and they were so ashamed of me when really that wasn't like it true at all. Like it wasn't my thinking. Um, and so I think the perfect like standard came in just from the outside world and like pressuring down on me and everything. And like with the dance thing, I just, something happened, one little thing happened my freshman year and my coaches got mad at me. And then I felt like they were like looking down on me for the rest of my four years of dance. Yeah. So that was like really hard. I struggled with that all throughout mm -hmm. high school and it got really, really bad, but. Yeah, and you probably personified some of that onto them? Oh, I definitely you know did. I mean? Onto like, them, onto my family, onto my friends. Like, I was carrying the burden of my eating disorder and my perfectionism so, for so long on my own that it, like, affected who, how I treated people. And, like, it was controlling me. Yeah. It was really dangerous and really scary. Yeah. So the, the problem with perfectionism is that it's, it's an unachievable goal that no one, absolutely no one can reach. Um, and yet we, we set that goal for ourselves, and then we judge ourselves or critique ourselves or beat ourselves up mentally or whatever. Um, we, we get so upset with ourselves uh, if we don't measure up to this standard, which literally no one can measure up to. Like it, it's just this unbeatable game of, of um, pain and hurt and disappointment and failure over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And the perfectionist just has this tendency to not understand what grace is or how to apply it. The perfectionist tends to not understand the fact that their identity is found not in what they do, but whose they are, mm -hmm. which is Jesus. And the perfectionist tends to not understand this, that there is nothing you can do to be perfect but in the eyes of God, you are already perfect. Like that is, a, that is a reality that is so hard to embrace because the kickback is, no, I'm not perfect, dude. If I were perfect, I wouldn't be <laughs> struggling with yeah. these things or doing these things, right? And, and so the biblical concept applied is like, look, the blood of Jesus applied to you, the sacrifice of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the victory over death of Jesus given to you sets you in this place of perfection positionally. So in other words, when God looks at you, he looks through the filter of his son. In other, in other words, he deals with you as he's pleased in his son. Mm -hmm. So your identity in Jesus is perfect in position, though not yet in practice. And that's what we're wrestling with. It's like, yeah, yeah, but I'm not perfect. Uh, in position before a holy God, you have been made perfect. You are allowed in the presence of God. You are holy. You are righteous. You are blameless because of the blood of Jesus and his righteousness. Your practice is still trying to catch up, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he's making you more like Jesus throughout your earthly life. I mean, that, that's a journey, but 
The perfectionist will look at these things and be like, no, 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 no. If I'm not perfect in my practice, then I'm not perfect That's in my exactly position. That's exactly like and my like, thinking. Dude. I used to get so mad. Like, I'd be crying for no reason. And, like, my mom or, like, my friends or whatever would be like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. But in yeah. my mind, I was like... <laughs> I'm so mad because I can't be perfect. I know nothing that I do will ever be perfect enough and be like mm -hmm. completely right to everybody. And so I used to get so upset about that and put so much like pressure on me to be that mm. perfectionist. And it was so hard. Yeah. And it, it like there, you never any closer to reaching that goal because just like, um, you know, magnets, when they're the same polarization, how they, if you move one, the other moves away. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just say you did get uh, closer to this original goal you had set. The closer you get to that goal, the further this thing moves away. Like, you're always going to be redefining what perfect looks like if you can't embrace the perfection that God has already given you. I always try to, like, one-up stuff yeah. and try to get better. Which is pretty destructive. It is. Long term. So, all right, let me ask you this, because you said something that I think is just so... Amazing. Um, you said in your relationship with God, freedom came when I asked for help. Mm. And that statement in and of itself, I mean, I feel like we could make a t-shirt of just that <laughs> and preach an entire series on just that. So freedom came when I asked for help. You shared, you, you shared with us that you didn't tell your parents during the course of six years mm -hmm. or so until... This last Christmas, like, December, yeah, Christmas, January, yeah. yeah, and so you didn't ask for help. You didn't tell other people, right? Mm -hmm. So it was internalized, didn't private, Very oh, private. just so corrosive, man. Secrets yeah. kill us from the inside out. Um, no, no vulnerability, fear of vulnerability, yes. uh, as as you shared about our leadership class. So freedom came when you asked for help. That is, I think, like the golden nugget of mm -hmm. of tonight. So share with us, like, all right, what did that look like? What did it look like to come to the place where you realize I need help, I need to ask for help? How did you ask for help? How did you confess this thing, which at that point, it's like six years, you know? How do you go to someone and be like, hey, I haven't told you this for six years. I know I should have all along, and I haven't, so here it is. So how mm -hmm. did you approach that with your parents, with God? How did you ask for help? Because yeah, um, that is one of the greatest challenges in this life. It was really scary because I was terrified. I was like, my mom's going to kill me. Like, my mom's <laughs> going to be so mad at me. And my friends are going to yes. be mad at me. Everybody's going to be upset with me. And probably, there's probably a thought in your mind of like, I know I'm not perfect, but hopefully I've convinced other people that I am. And yeah. if I actually say this thing, it'll destroy the image that I've tried so hard to build. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think around the time that like, I finally asked for help, was when I was in that liminal class and everything, and we were play we were doing a uh, like a like whatever mm -hmm. it's called, and um, <laughs> a team initiative. There you go, we're there. Designed um, to spark certain realities. Yes, yes, yes. And I remember we were doing it forever, 30, 45 minutes. Nobody was getting it. It was like a maze, and we were all blindfolded. Mm -hmm. And I remember just standing there. I was kidding when I was like, I need help. And then mm -hmm. you pulled me away, and you're like, um, so you just like were the first person out of the maze, and I was mm -hmm. like wait, what? And it was all about, I need help. And so after that like game was like over, I came to the realization, I was like, oh my gosh, I need help. Like I, all I have to do is ask for it. And I think I was trying to be stubborn for so long and not get any help 
because of how ashamed yeah. I was for it. But I think I got to the point where my mom was starting to notice I wasn't acting the same. And so was my boyfriend at the time. Everybody mm -hmm. was noticing like different things yeah. about me. And I was like getting to the point where it was like killing me mentally and it was just mm -hmm. terrible. So I was like, I have to tell them. And I was like so scared to do that, but it helped me so much. Yeah. And so what did that look like in your relationship with God? I think it was like a weight lifted off of me. I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I did it. And he still loves me and he still th I'm still his child. He still mm -hmm. thinks I'm like in his image and everything. Yeah. And I think after that, I realized he isn't going anywhere. He's yeah. not leaving. Like no matter how much I like mess up or how many secrets I try to keep, he's not going anywhere yeah. and everything. Awesome. What has God been teaching you in this season of life, specifically since February, when mm -hmm. you were diagnosed, you asked for help in December, you're diagnosed in February, you've been seeking counseling, which is amazing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a taboo thing. I hate that our culture is like, oh, oh yeah. you need counseling? Ooh, something's really wrong I with you. I used to like we not want to go. Counseling. I did yeah, not yeah. want to go. Um, so I love that. So what has God been teaching you in this season of life? I think he's been teaching me the most is that he's here to help too. Mm. Like, it's not just like our parents or doctors no. or anything. He's here to help too. And there's freedom in his love. If you just let him love you, if you just let him help you, there's so much freedom in that. And also I feel like you're going to lose things in life, friendships, mm -hmm. you know, relationships, everything. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Cause if it's God's will, it's going to be okay at the end of the day. And I think especially through my senior year, that's what he's really been teaching me a lot yeah. and to just, follow him like you have to just let go let yeah. go and let God as everybody says but yeah, yeah. that is so true in yeah. life yeah so just like Jacob kind of a surrender mm -hmm. in the wrestling match like all right you got me man yeah I got nothing else so one of the things I think is true is is the more we try to curate this image of perfection and the more we try to um, not let anyone into the things we're struggling with and the more we try to like hold ourselves up by our own strength one of the amazing things that happen is we actually become, in this whole image of strength and stability, we actually become more and more destabilized and fragile mm -hmm. and insecure. Like, the, there, it's, the, it's the opposite. And when we finally let go of trying to build this whole thing and we begin to confess and become vulnerable and let people into the places we've been ashamed to let them into mm -hmm. and ask God for help, all those things we were afraid of doing, we actually find strength, stability, identity, the things we were trying to build all along. And so what advice, this would be our, our kind of closing question. You got a room full of students here, a whole spectrum of things that they're walking through in life. What advice as a senior about to graduate, have graduated, uh, about to go into college, what advice would you give this room who may be struggling with things and they're trying to build this image of strength and stability and perfection, mm -hmm. but meanwhile, they're finding themselves incredibly delicate and fragile and insecure, and, and the slightest opinion of them will just throw them into this spiral of what's wrong with me or whatever. Yeah. What advice would you give? I us? think I would say that high school is very temporary. <laughs> like, like, all four, the high Four years or so. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, everything in high school, friendships, like drama, it's so temporary and so childish, and it goes away. Like once you graduate, I've realized that so much stuff has just gone away mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, I don't even think about that anymore. So I think for me, 
was realizing distancing my distancing myself mm. from the toxic things in my life and probably just not caring as much as what other people thought about me yeah. was really eye-opening for me and yeah. finding that freedom more and more, especially now that I'm about to go off to college and stuff. I feel like this like summer has like been really good for me and my heart before I go off to college because I've lost a lot, but I've gained a lot at the same time. That's great. But. That's great. Yeah, and I, I think not caring what people think about you, being willing to lose things, being willing to surrender, I don't think those things are possible unless we are finding our identity in Jesus mm -hmm. and what his truth says about us, what his word says about us, uh, what his spirit is saying to us. Like when we try to find our identity in culture or comparison, you mentioned that earlier, like looking at everyone else or some image we're trying to build when our identity is rooted in those, we will never be satisfied. Mm -hmm. But when they're in Jesus, we find satisfaction, which is really amazing and very, very hard to do. Yeah, and like when I was prepping for this, I came, I was like in my room just thinking, and like I wrote it down because I knew I was gonna forget about it. And I said, trying to find your identity in anything but God will make you feel more lost than found because full freedom and identity is found through Him and by Him and everything. And I was like, that is so true and why have I not been listening to my, hmm. listening to that more? Man, that is so good. Say it again slowly. I said trying. For the ones in the back, <laughs> Becky. I said trying to find your identity in anything but God will make you feel more lost than found, mm -hmm. because full freedom and identity is found through Him and by Him. Wow, that's really powerful. Awesome, Emma. Thanks so much. Thank We're so you. proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Thank, Thank you, you for, for sharing your story me. with us tonight. Let's give it up for Emma. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you, for, thank you for pointing us to Jesus and the cross and the victory he gives through finding identity in him. It's something I pray for my kids every single night. So thank you for bringing us there. Let's, let's close in prayer uh, as, we, as the band comes up for one last song. Jesus, thank you so much for Emma and her heart and her story. Thank you for her vulnerability and courage and uh, for sharing with us the redemptive truth and victory to be found in you when we find our identity in you, Jesus. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for her story. And Jesus, I pray that if there are those in this room struggling with something and they're finding their identity in that and instead of you, that tonight your spirit would stir their heart and convict them and bring them to a place of repentance to find their identity in you and you alone and therefore freedom and victory and satisfaction. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, Emma. Oh, I meant to say this too. Go ahead, say it. Um, if anybody is like struggling with anything like this and you haven't come to anybody or if you have gone to somebody, I'd love to talk afterwards if you'd like to and if you're open to. But thank you guys. Thank you, Emma.